Welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham, where I talk to all sorts of different people to hear the stories of their lives. And this week's storyteller is Ben Fogel. And let me tell you, he is a natural, a born communicator who recounts all sorts of brilliant anecdotes from his childhood, growing up the son of a famous actress and an adventurer vet. He tells me about the travels that every TV show he's done has taken him on around the world. He tells me about the joy of being a father with his lovely wife, Marina, and the tragedy and the pain that losing a third child at full term has brought onto them both. Ben is a true optimist, a real glass half full kind of guy. And he's written a book. Well, in fact, he's written 10, but his latest one, Up, is all about looking up in life and making the best of every situation is exactly what he does. The smile on his face as he tells me all about his life. I hope you enjoy it as much as Ben clearly enjoys living. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Fogel. So here we are, Ben, in your incredible home. I look around it and it's stunning because there's a lot going on and yet it's incredibly tidy. How have you achieved that? Perhaps that's down to Marina. It's currently, do you know what? I love, I love my home. I mean, we all love our homes, but I, I actually have a slight obsessive um, uh, attachment to it. I think it's a symptom. I've tried to wonder why, because I've done all this myself, everything, the whole house. Well, it's all, all you, it's not it, Marina. Yeah, it's all me. The, the tidiness is not necessarily me, but, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, the assembly of all the components, all the colourful things, all the bits I've collected around the world is me and I think it's partly because I spend so much time away maybe 10 months of the year that when I'm away I, I kind of think back to my house and I think wouldn't it be nice to have if, if I did this room like this and get more plants and you'll see there's lots of greenery and it's uh, and and for me I think it's trying to bring a little bit of the wilderness into my house because a lot of people are surprised that we're you know we're here sitting in central London people think that I should I belong in Scotland or Cornwall but actually I'm a Londoner through and through I was born in the middle of London, I could see Marble Arch from my childhood bedroom, and and I love this city. But I definitely try to make this place feel a little wilder than it is. <laughs> it, definitely, it definitely feels it wild. There's this eclectic mix, as you say, of colour. So much colour, but all sorts of artifacts, things that you've obviously brought back from around the world. And does it help with a bit of escapism to make you realise that? you know a bit of daydreaming that you're not actually in the middle of London I think so you know I, I if we look around now you know we're, we're sitting in the kitchen above us are lots of um, uh, ornamental umbrellas really colorful that I picked up in the Indian Himalayas while I was filming out there in the garden is a beautiful paddleboard that was made by some guys on Dartmoor um, that I travel around with um, there's a painting just behind me um, by my favourite artist, Ollie and Susie, of an elephant. And you'll see the print uh, of the elephant actually on it when they, they painted it in Nepal uh, at a place called Tiger Tops, where I've spent time. So everything has a story. And I love stories. Stories are a big part of who I am. Um, I, I like to consider myself a storyteller and I like the fact that I can look at things and especially as the children grow up that they're starting to ask well where did that come from why have you got that there and I can actually um, uh, kind of elaborate it's not yeah. just something that, yeah. that I found randomly. Because when you look at your CV I mean you've packed an incredible amount I mean 
if, if somebody was 90 looking back at that kind of life, they'd be impressed. But you, you've done it in half the time. Uh, you say you're a storyteller. Is that first and foremost how you would describe yourself? Because I don't think a TV presenter really does it justice. I don't. I'm so. I'm introduced on so many different ways. I'm sometimes described as a TV presenter. Sometimes I'm a broadcaster. Sometimes I'm a writer. Sometimes I I'm think a, broadcaster sounds very grand. It does. It makes you it? sound more intelligent think, than a TV I think, presenter. I think. I think you need to be kind of in your 60s or 70s. Right. You need to have reached the heady heights of kind of Attenborough before you're yeah, a broadcaster. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> but there is there are so many different descriptions, and I think in our industry. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes as well. Mm. I sound a bit posh, and uh, and I started in a reality show, and and I think as as the years have gone on, I've worked for 20 years now in in this medium. I've tried to to um, kind of draw it all in and make some sort of sense of of what it is I do, and I've decided it is storytelling. So I will take a landscape, or I'll take individuals, or I'll take a lifestyle. And I'm I'm going to tell that story mm. to um, listeners, to viewers, or to readers. Mm. And, and and I love all those mediums. I love writing. I love doing television, and I love the spoken word. And I think there's something really beautiful, especially with children now. I love being able to translate my experiences. So tonight, in, in a couple of hours, I'll head off to Sri Lanka for a fleet. In my world, kind of a fleeting visit. It's about a week. But I'll come back and I'll have to try and, while the children are in the bath, try and translate that and storytell a week's worth of, because children don't have, they're, they're not going to put up with uh, days and days of me recounting. And then I went to... <laughs> yeah, come you know, on, Dad, don't bore us. I, I've, I've, got to, you know, I've, got to keep, I've got to keep their attention. And yeah. I, love, I, love, I love that. I love the medium. And that is kind of how I would describe myself now in all those areas, whether it's conservation whether it's um, TV presenting or whether it's writing. That's actually a lovely way of putting it. I like that. Um, so right, let's cast your mind back. Tell me the story of your childhood because it sounds really fascinating that you've got a, a real mix of characters from mother and a father. Two very different backgrounds. Mother, very famous actress. Dad, a vet. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really imagine those two coming together. And, and yet, in you, both have manifested their kind mm. of... Uh, outlook on life and you're kind of this gregarious outgoing performer and yet your passion is clearly animals and conservation mum and dad are such different characters dad is a like a full dyed in the wool Canadian he, he wears his lumberjack shirt he's you know he always wears the Canadian flag in case he's mistaken for an American and he, he hasn't lost his accent and he's been here for nearly 50 years and, and he is as Canadian as you can get and yet he lives in London and then my mother um, is is a slightly more outgoing actress um, who, who was very famous back in the, the 60s and 70s and they both met actually when when my mother took her dog in to to her, her sick dog into my father who's a vet no. and that's that's how they met and uh and I'm I, I'd like to think I am an exact mix of the two of them because I've got I, I love animals I wanted to be a vet but I just wasn't clever I enough you say I wanted to be an animal though. <laughs> no, I would I would I'd quite like to be an animal I, I, I think I'd definitely be a dog um but uh no I, I I wanted to be a vet and I wanted to be an actor I, I wanted to follow both of their their paths and I didn't become a vet because I wasn't clever enough. And I didn't become an actor because I got rejected by every drama school who, who didn't think that I was uh, was good enough. But what's weird is if you look at lots of the things I've done, working on Animal Park, working at 
crufts and doing various animal shows over the years and working in conservation out in Africa, I've kind of been able to step onto the small screen, not the stage necessarily, uh, but um, I've stepped onto the small screen and worked with animals. So it's, it really is this mix. But I grew up in, I grew up above Dad's veterinary clinic in central London, like I mentioned, and. I had quite. I had a, a. I had a Jekyll and Hyde childhood. So on one hand, it was really urban. We didn't even have a garden, uh, so we'd walk the dogs down the street. And how did your um, dad cope with that, though? If you're coming from Canada, I think. Well, we, we've always made the most of the green spaces that we have, right. and actually, in Great Britain, we don't appreciate it as much. But we've we've got very green cities, and London has more green outdoor space than than any other. Mm-hmm city um, almost in the world and we lived a stone's throw from Hyde Park and and all of the Royal Parks, Hyde Park, Kensington Gardens, Holland Park, Regent's Park, Primrose Hill are a huge part of me. It's where I, went, I met my wife, Marina. I'm jumping ahead now. I but know, but that, I was going to say, met they met over a dog and so yeah. did you. Yeah, we, uh, so, and not only did we meet over a dog, but we met in the London parks, which are a big part. So the parks have always been a form of escapism and we live now opposite a little park and I've always needed that escape and we were able to have that for our summer holidays. We went out to Canada for eight glorious weeks to live in a little house that my grandfather had hand-built on the shores of a lake. So I'd, I'd have this extreme wilderness and then back to kind of gritty urbanness. And I think, I think it's made me the person I am because I love those contradictions mm. and, and I've had it ever since. I, I go to one extreme and I come back. So I'll, I'll be filming out in Afghanistan and having an intense experience and then I'll be back at, on a red carpet at some event in London. And it used to do my head in but I actually, I really thrive on, on the dichotomy and, and these two worlds. It doesn't mean that either of them are right or wrong, but I, I, I like that juxtaposition. My God, yeah, sounds fantastic. Uh, are you surprised in a way that your parents' characters complemented each other? Are you surprised that they got together? Um, I think my, my father's a very gentle, kind man, and my mother um, is... Um, my, my mother's kind of probably more stoic and English. She's a bit more reserved, but she's an actress as well. So I think she's got, and she's got those fundamental things that many actors and actresses have, that they have their vulnerabilities, that they're actually, um, I think a lot of, the, the, the main difference between being a presenter, like you or I, or being an actor, is that we have to be ourselves. And, and there's no, you, you are what you see, and you can't really pretend. And if you do, people see through it, and you've got no longevity. So I've, I've always thought that the, that that defines a presenter, whereas an actor is often people who have insecurities and uh, are a bit too shy to really be themselves. So they live behind the facade of the characters that they're playing. Yeah, and it was their life being someone else. Yeah, yeah. And, and, so, and that used to be a bit confusing for me as a child because yeah. I'd be picked up by my mother who suddenly became an Irish woman with... <laughs> with black hair uh, when she's actually English with blonde hair and she because she would adapt she, she would completely adopt those characters and she'd pick me up from school with wild uh, red hair one day um, speaking in a Scots accent and uh, and she really immersed herself and it was, it was quite embarrassing many times because uh, you know she, she definitely um, was theatrical in in all her manners and and the, the, my parents are very different characters in that sense but I think they come I think I think that's I think that chalk and cheese works really well with um with relationships and and I certainly had a really really happy childhood and we're a very close family they live five minutes from here I see them 
Every day, in fact, my father walks his dogs in the little park opposite us. So whenever we get up in the morning, when I uh, open the children's windows, I always see him in the park and we wave to him and he comes in for a cup of coffee. Uh, and, and, and I like that. I, we're, we're, I'm, family is everything mm, for me. How perfect. I love it. Um, now, Castaway. I remember that happening and I remember thinking, God, who on earth would want to go and spend a year up there? And having, well, I'm vegetarian, so I'd always be very squeamish about having to kill you. And I'd like to be able to think I could do it, but I, mm. uh, but I couldn't. Um, what was it about that that appealed to you so much at the time? Were you kind of looking for direction in your life? I, I, was, only, I was 23 or so, and I had graduated university. I'd found some work at a magazine in London, and, uh, and I was looking for another escape, mm. to be honest. I was looking for adventure, and, and I saw this advert, and it just... Reality TV didn't exist. Mm. This was the kind of the forefront um, of of that whole genre, mm. and and it just sounded like an amazing opportunity to to put off becoming a sensible grown up for another year. Mm. So so I did this, and and you're right, it didn't appeal to everyone, but there's still thousands of people applied, and I think I don't think you'll ever get the pure innocence that you got on that show mm. because none of us none of us had any expectation that the show would do well. N- none of us realised w- what opportunities it might give us. Mm. So no one went on there for fame and fortune. Everyone went there to learn to be farmers and mm. to live on an island. And I loved that year. It was still one of the greatest years of my life. Every And that's the other thing, everyone forgets it. Everyone, I'm often asked, was it, what, was it a week or was it like a month? And I was like, no, it was 12 months. It's a long, <laughs> a long time. time yeah. And uh, I loved it. it. It was a really, really special place. And that island, it was um, an island called Taramsay up in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, is still, I think, one of the most beautiful places I've, mm. I've ever been. And, and I actually took Marina there for our honeymoon. And we're planning a, a trip. With the, the children still haven't been up there, but we're going to go next summer. I'm, I'm very excited about It's that. only the midges that I don't like up there. The midges are a problem. We didn't have, I think, much to the producers' um, uh, dismay, we didn't have many midges when oh. we were there. I think they hoped that we were, they, oh. there would be lots and that we'd be plagued by them and it would be miserable and make for good television, but we didn't have any. And uh, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why I really loved it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because we, we just had, we had beautiful weather. Everything about it was magical. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. When you came back, it must have been a shock just how famous everyone had become. And suddenly, as you say, this juxtaposition again mm. of, of going to the utter wilderness, you're cocooned really. Um, anonymity was everything. And then you come back and, and suddenly, you know, you're on the front pages and it's dawn of celebrity. And as you say, reality TV, you know. Yeah. And it, it really was the kind of dawn of celebrity. Even yeah. the word wasn't yeah. really used. Yeah. And... We were probably at the kind of the sharp end of that, and it was a shock. Mm. And, and I remember being being really confused by the whole thing. I didn't know how to how to whether to embrace it, mm. whether to try to leave it behind. And, and incidentally, ninety nine percent of the people on that island left it behind. Mm. They, they, they were they proactively. So you could do that. You could yeah, you push could, it you, away. I, I could have. So you must have liked it to an extent. I thought. Well, listen, I wanted to be an actor. There's mm. there's a bit of a show. There's got to be a bit of a show off in me, really, mm. doesn't there? And and I kind of thought. I, I remember going for a meeting with with some executives at the BBC who said, "Would we you know? Would you like to pursue this? Would you like to try and be a presenter?" And I thought, well. Why not have a go? I'm I'm kind of a yes man. You, you know, if you look at my CV and you go through everything, it's basically that I just can't say no. I just say yes. Why, why not? Because I think life's too short. I, I like to, I like to seize the moment and seize the opportunity. And I probably could have I could have stepped away from it, but it seemed like 
a, an amazing opportunity. You know, the first show I was given was the holiday show. And, and for someone that loves travel, that was the dream job to go. I went, I went off to Fiji. I mean, it was the first job I ever got was to go to Fiji. I, I'd never been to that part of the world. And I just thought, I can't believe I, I, I'm being paid to go and make a film on television about holidays. And it kind of it, it went on from there. And that's when I started to kind of um, narrow down the sort of work that I did. I worked for Country File for many years. I did Animal Park with Kate Humble at Longleat for many years and Crufts. And I did lots of kind of good, wholesome, uh, countryside animal shows. And I loved those. But I think the, the, there was an adventurous streak somewhere hidden deep beneath that, that I wanted to try and... That, that I wanted to try and find, and 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 I think I suddenly realised, well, maybe I maybe I can use my you know the, the, my my position to actually do some of those things. Have you surprised yourself then? Because you talk a bit, uh, you know, about growing up not being particularly sporty, not being particularly confident, and yet when you look at some of your feats, physical. I mean, they're just, they're crazy. One of the things that you said yes to, in fact, you pursued, I know that you took it to James Cracknell, was mm. the row across the Atlantic. Mm. Did it surprise that you, that you actually wanted to do that? I'm, when I think back to that, because was, it was about 12 years ago now, I'm kind of, I'm amazed that I had the balls to, to think I could do it. Yeah. I'm amazed that I was brave enough to ask James Cracknell, you know, <laughs> an, an amazing Olympian. <laughs> and I'm amazed that we did it. I, I still, I, I kind of have to pinch myself because... Everything, everything was against us. Mm. Everything was against us, and and I still, I think, in terms of achievements, the fact that we crossed that, that the finish line to that race was a one mile marker from the edge of a tiny island in the Caribbean. If we missed that one mile marker, this is the bigger thing. Forget about just rowing across the Atlantic. Mm. I still find it unbelievable that James and I, who knew nothing, sod all about the oceans we were somehow able to navigate that little boat just using a pair of oars mm. and hit that line. Because 60% of the boats that did it got there but missed the line. So they, 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 it didn't ca- count as having yes. completed the race. I know a lot of people don't realise this. No. And the fact that we crossed that line, and we were so stubborn because we knew the wind was pushing us south. So we rowed one, one-handed with just one oar on one side of the boat to counteract the wind no. so that we weren't pushed us. That's how stubborn we were and when I think back to that whole thing I, I think it's without doubt my greatest achievement and uh, and the, the bigger thing was that it really defied my expectations and other people's expectations because you know I, I was this hopeless um, unsporting failure I don't believe that Although, although, actually, having said that, when I saw you partner up with each other, because I remember thinking this, I remember thinking James would be the really strong mm. one mentally. Mm. And, of course, because he's this accomplished um, Olympian. And actually, really, you turned out to be the rock in it all. Did, did, I don't would you go along with that? I don't know if it's entirely like that. I think you're right that it surprised people that James started falling apart a mm. little sooner than I did. But that, that comes down to character. And James, you know, is one of the hardest working Olympians I've ever met. I've met quite a few Olympians since. He's so focused. He, he has dedicated so many years, like many Olympians, to, to, towards this one discipline. But it's always been in a controlled environment um, for a 20-minute race. Mm. And what James found much harder was, was taking 
that energy and realizing that he had to preserve it for for a long period of time it wasn't just a 20 minute race this mm. this was a race that might have la- could have lasted up to 4 months mm. and he he approached the race as a race mm. um so he went right in there to uh compete rather than to complete and and i went there with this perhaps this island mentality having spent a whole year on an island you learn how to you learn how to cope with boredom. You learn how to preserve yourself. You learn how to not eat all your chocolate in one go. It's, it's, a cla- it's exactly like that. It's, it's no different to me saying, here you go, Natalie. Here's, here's your sweets. They're going to last you for the whole year. Now, some people eat them all straight away. Other people are very... And I, I used to be one of those ones that just eat them all. And other people are very good at, at spreading them out throughout the year and deciding, right, that's what we'll have then. And that's what James wasn't able to do during the Atlantic row. And that's why he fell apart. And, and do you think he went into it with expectations that he would be stronger and better than he was because he's got all these um, Olympic medals around his neck? Do you think because the wider expectation was that as well? Do you think? I think he did. Perhaps I, he went in slightly unprepared mentally. I think I don't think he fully realised quite what a, a, a mental battle it was going to be out there because it was far more than just the physical mm. challenge. Mm. And I've seen that with every event I've done since, whether it was with James or other Olympians, mm. is that. Um, so often, especially with these bigger challenges, whether it's rowing or walking to the South Pole or climbing mountains, it's not the physicality of it. It's all it's the mind over matter. It's the battle of the mind. Now, a lot of Olympians have have to confront that when they turn, when they enter the stadium and the world, the country's expectations are on them. They've got to get that gold medal. I, I can't imagine pressure like that. Mm. It, it, I, I think that is, the, the, I have the greatest respect for our Olympians to be able to somehow control mm. that expectation. That, the, the, that expectation, And I think James, there was a lot of expectation that James, the Olympic rower, double gold medalist, Olympic medalist, of course he'd be fine on the, the ocean. But mm. when you add into it the discomfort, the dehydration, the, the lack of sleep, the, the horrid food, the overwhelming weather everything was against us and the rowing the the moving the arms back and forth was incidental it was a tiny part of it and I think that's what probably surprised him and um and and I think that 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 was probably the hardest part Mm. of it but when you think how far you personally had come to get to that point this is a guy who by your own admission say you failed so Mm. many times at so many Mm -hmm. things I don't know if you're just being a bit more seven times to get your driving test Mm -hmm. So, so, so you mean you must be sitting there thinking, God, how have I got to this point? Well, I do, and I, and I think the bravery and the reason I think I'm kind of amazed and really ha- glad that I did take on that race was that the risk of failure was so high. Mm. And what I've tried to That's do, likely, I mean, the likelihood of failure was far higher than the likelihood of success. And uh, but that's kind of how I've approached life ever since. I, I've decided that sometimes you have to if if you haven't failed you haven't been trying hard enough that's that's kind of my mantra and you have to risk risk is a big part of my life and a big part of my kind of attitude to how we can better ourselves Mm. and I think you have to you have to risk failure. Okay, so when did that realization set in what was your tipping point? Well I think well it started with a, 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 an early childhood that was dominated by failure and I was terrified of it and I wanted to try and avoid 
avoid the risk of failure yeah, but you at didn't, all because you've always said yes to everything this is what no, I know but this this I'll tell you when that changed it changed okay. after I failed all my A-levels I can remember in my parents house not far from here opening the the grades and there was an N in in A-level geography and I just remember th- just th- that was it but written in that those few letters the the education system in this country had decided and dictated that I was a failure and therefore I was going to have a really shit life. That's that's how I interpreted it because exam grades are still seen as as the the arbiter or the the the, the, um, the marker of whether you're going to succeed or not, whether you're going to go to university and you get a good job and all of those things. And and there was me. I'd failed. All my friends had gone off to university, and I I, I remember just feeling wretched, dis, dipping into a depression, this black kind of hole of of despair. And but I picked myself up and I. I got my first job I worked as an ice cream scooper in central London I worked every hour I possibly could and then did some extra bar work and I saved up money for a a plane ticket and I I just took off I escaped probably and I went off to South America and one year became two years and for two years I didn't I didn't just do the kind of bumming around South America but I, I I kind of found myself I know it sounds a bit of a cliche but I went there and suddenly I kind of I became I, I felt like I could be myself. I didn't feel like I was always surrounded by people who were better than me, which is what had dogged me as a child. I'd been surrounded by success, successful parents, mm-hmm. um, successful friends, friends who were better looking at than me, friends who were better achievers at sport, who who were better academically. Mm-hmm. And suddenly in South America, I was my own mm-hmm. person, and the, the smells and the culture and the food, everything was so exciting and. That's when I, I kind of realized, actually, achievement and success doesn't have to be defined by an exam mm. and, uh, uh, or the pressure of a, a single moment, mm. that you can, you can actually, um, you can better yourself through the wilderness, through uh, wildlife. And that's where I think my real passion, which is, I can't even begin to explain how much I love the outdoors and the wilderness, that's where that started. Mm. And the wilderness sort of saved me. And and the more you do, it's a bit like anything, the, the, the more spicy your curry, the more spicy you want it the next time. And what happens is when you go to South America and you hitchhike down the Amazon on a boat, you think, that's cool. I wonder what it would be like to row it. And then you <laughs> row it and then you think, that, that was cool. I wonder what it would be like to swim it. And, and this is kind of how... Not it, everyone thinks this. You but, know this that. Is how it, but this is how it escalates. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, I'm a passionate traveller and I've just kind of embraced every kind of travel and experience I could. We well, you know what stands out from this for me is the fact that you took control of your destiny. Mm. You weren't determined by what somebody else said no. was going to, you know, form the rest of your life. And I think that's probably best advice you could give your kids or anyone listening yeah. to this that's probably well, panicking I'll, I'll slightly so, so I wrote so recently climbed Everest and I I wrote a book with Marina my wife about it called Up and it's called Up not because of the obvious going up a mountain it's actually about having more of a positive outlook on life and I thought I wrote this letter to Ludo and Iona before I left uh, before I left that I left hidden um just you know you have to I I, I it was a dangerous mountain. Is this going to make me cry? Uh, well, I think you'll. I think you'll appreciate this. So imagine me reading this to your children. Yeah. Dear Ludo and Iona, life is about the journey, not the destination. Live it brightly, live it brilliantly, and live it wisely. Don't waste it. Not one single day. Add life to your days, not days to your life. Dream, dare, do. Live for the now, not the then. Be spontaneous and smile. Go with your heart. 
Instinct is often right. Take criticism on the chin and use it usefully. Life is there to complete, not to compete. Although it will sometimes feel like a competition, don't get swept up by it. It's not a race. Be magnanimous in victory and graceful in defeat. Be humble and try not to grumble. Confide, don't divide. Reach, don't preach. Be caring and considerate. Be principled but open-minded enough to be pragmatic. Try and be the shepherd, not the sheep. Remember, you aren't just a face in the crowd. You are unique. Despite a planet of seven billion, there is no one else like you. Your personality will be shaped and moulded by the company you keep and the experiences you have. Be comfortable with who you are. Don't try and be what others want or expect you to be. Listen, be curious and learn. Wealth is all about how you interpret it. Money will not buy you happiness nor love. Experiences will make you richer. Travel will broaden your mind. People will judge you, but don't let that judgment define you. Don't let failure defeat you. Insecurity will creep up on you throughout life. Try not to listen to it. Be confident, not arrogant. Give, share. People will be outrageous and provocative. Try not to be outraged or provoked. Don't live life through a screen. Live it for bikes and hikes, not likes and swipes. Routine is far more dangerous than risk. Some days you will feel a little down. The highs and lows are human nature. Your life should be filled with light and shade. It's these ups and downs that remind us what's important in life. Be brave, take risks, live your life, smile, and don't forget to look up. Love, Daddy. So I think that the reason I've, I've I read that because that's my that that's my philosophy on life. After forty-four years of doing things and meeting people and experiencing, I'm I'm a father. It's the most important thing mm. in my life. You'll know that. You know, as soon as you've got children, they are your everything. And and my life isn't perfect because. I'm away far too frequently. Mm. Um, but what I am able to give them is experiences and we travel a lot as a family and sharing them. So to take something like my experience on Everest and to inspire them and to remind them, which, and it's not that my parents didn't do this, but the time wasn't, at the time when I was a child, academia was academia and that was it. And if you failed the exam, then tough bully for you. Mm. <laughs> stiff up a lip and just get on with it mm. whereas now I think you know we're a much more touchy-feely society mm. in a good way I think mm. and I want my children to know they can achieve anything if they put their mind to it not instantly this whole uh this whole x factor instant click your fingers fame mm. is is not real it's it's not a true representation of the hard graft that people like you and and me put into our lives mm. there's there's this idea that if you're a celebrity if you're famous um, everything's just handed to you and it's just come very easily. But as you'll know, there's no such thing as an easy day. Mm. You know, you have to work at absolutely everything, whether it's your own fitness and to keep yourself healthy, whether it's uh, to keep, to sustain your job. And, and, and those are the kind of lessons that I like to show. And it's why I still am drawn to challenges. It's very easy to be complacent. I could sit under my colourful Indian umbrellas and be very, <laughs> be very happy and daydreaming here all day drinking coffee. I'd be very happy doing that. Yeah, I don't think you would though. No, I think I you get I think you get bored after a while. I, yeah. I, I think there's a lot that not just children but adults can learn from that letter. It's absolutely lovely and it's, um, it's so true. But do you think um, it took you to become a father to reach that point in mm. your mind? For sure. I think fatherhood changed everything because mm. it made me 
um, more humble, more respectful, more considered, and you start looking at things differently. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why I'm even more passionate uh, about the environment, about conservation, about caring and protecting mm. the flora and fauna and, and, and what we have on this planet, mm. because we're, we're not a very respectful species, unfortunately, mm. you know, that there is a lot of gluttony, there is a lot of waste. And I, I, I'm, I'm a symptom of that. I'm, I, I, I travel far too much. I fly too much. I, I eat meat, you know, as you all know, as a, a, a vegan, it's, it's one of the, the worst um, impacts on the planet is eating meat. So I struggle on a daily basis, but having children, focuses my mind a little bit more and and makes me I'd, I'd like to think makes me more considered mm. yeah I, I couldn't agree more I think since becoming a mum I've it sort of stopped me in my tracks I just notice everything so much more and I mm. consider everything so I think we're all guilty of rushing through life a bit maybe and I don't know I think that's probably the the one I definitely appreciate everything the simple things I know it sounds corny but we just went down to the seaside together and just it was just pure joy just toes in the sand sun on your face and it was a freezing cold day but beautiful sky and I don't know there was just there was lovely probably one of the best days of my life but you know as, as in that letter I wrote it's it, experiences yeah. are the wealth of life yeah. right? you, you, yeah. there's this assumption that we're so we're so dazzled and blinded by money everyone thinks that life is all about having as much money as you can. And yes, of course, to, to be wealthy gives affords you lots of opportunities. Yeah. There's lots of things you can do and, and, and it's a great enabler. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it won't necessarily buy you the happiness mm-hmm. that spending a, a couple of days with your family in, in yeah. the, the, the coast off Great Britain can. Yeah. Um, now, Up is actually your 10th book. Mm. I mean, that is ridiculous to be just 44 having written... 10 books and this one is special as you say because you wrote it with Marina now what role did she have in this well the reason I wanted to write it with Marina is that one of the most common questions I get asked is what did your wife think yeah, yeah, How, yeah, yeah. Why, was she scared was she nervous yeah. um did did she mind yeah. um did she want to go and I found myself being asked so many questions and Marina has a very strong voice herself and it seemed ridiculous that I always answer on her behalf uh, and she's also become a very good writer. She, she, she's written a couple of books herself. And uh, and, and I, I loved the idea that this journey was far more than just me. I may have got the glory of standing on the, the summit of Mount Everest, but it was a family thing. Mm-hmm. Marina had to look after the children while I was away. Marina had to kind of keep them happy and confident. Um, so so I kind of, uh, I, I thought it would be fascinating for people reading it to see how that dynamic mm-hmm. works and what it's like being here in this house, knowing that I'm up halfway up the mountain, mm. about to start on another uh, ascent attempt. Um, How often were you in contact in that process? How often did she speak to you? We actually spoke quite a lot. Compared, usually when I go away, we don't speak a, a great deal. I mm. find it throws the family balance often, mm. the time differences, the children sometimes. I actually... find that with FaceTime, actually. If I go to a Grand Prix, I'm desperate to see their kids' faces, mm. but when they see my face it can upset them it, it can, so it's a bit selfish sometimes I think I, that's that's what we've decided here yeah. and, and we had a number of uh, experiences exactly like that I'd call and the children had been super happy and then yeah. suddenly it's like I want daddy yeah. and it's not fair for Marina leaving her to pick up the pieces so 
actually when I'm away for most of my trips we, we rarely speak it's just how it works people might be surprised to hear that but it's how it works but actually on Everest the communications were, were pretty good and we spoke quite a lot there and I thought it was important for Marina you know it is a highly dangerous place and I wanted to reassure her and it's not that I I, I never lied but I was definitely careful with my editing ed- edited conversations with her about what was happening, what had happened. I I thought it was fair because the mind can play all sorts of fantastic Mm. tricks. So if I told her about all the avalanches that were happening uh, and and the icefall collapses that were happening, I I decided it it simply wouldn't have been, Mm. been fair for her. Now, you went with Kenton Cool, who summited, this would have been his 13th mm. summit of Everest, which is astonishing. Um, it's interesting because until I spoke to you, until, on, until I've read some of what you've written, I've always selfishly maybe tried to put my husband off mm. doing Everest. He's desperate to, to do it. But then when we had kids, he was like, no, 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 I won't do it. It's selfish, it's selfish. I couldn't possibly do it. And yet I know there's a part of him that's mm. just longing to. So how did you overcome that hurdle of, of obviously feeling pretty selfish mm. pursuing your own um your own dream um and how did you reassure did you have to reassure marina who who in actually ultimately made the decision that you should go it it was a complete uh, a mutual decision i listen i want there's no such thing i i was it, it, interesting isn't it you say that you're right i i wanted to it was it had been a childhood dream and i I put as good a case to Marina as to why I should do this. And, and here was my case, that this was a childhood dream. It was something that was a burning passion of mine to mm. try and do it. That I also put off when, we, when I became a dad, I became a sensible dad, put off risk, don't, don't take selfish, mm. take on selfish challenges. And then, and then it began to occur to me, especially as the children got older, that not only was I just living, telling stories, boring them about things I did in the past, the time I rode across the Atlantic years ago with James or crossed Antarctica or crossed the deserts. So I I was just living in the past. But also, I wasn't necessarily living by the the advice I was giving them to pursue your dreams, to not be held back by anyone, to not, not do something because society has a certain expectation about it. And uh, and I felt that for me to to go and try and climb Mount Everest would be at least um, living what I was preaching to, mm. to my children, mm. and and I did half the battle up the mountain was this battle of was I being selfish or not? Mm. I, it, it happened often, especially when there were dangerous moments, of yeah. which there were many. And now I'm back. It, listen, it had a happy ending. I yeah. got I got to the summit, and. I think many, I, many don't, we should say. Oh, many, many what, what don't. What is the percentage of those? Uh, I, don't, I mean, as in people who just aren't able to complete it. Yeah. I, 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 wouldn't, I, don't, I wouldn't like to say no, now no, the percentage, but it's a lot. Yeah. A, a lot of people. In fact, your, your own teammate, um, Victoria, Victoria Pendleton, Pendleton yeah. didn't because yeah. she had altitude sickness. She, she suffered and life-threatening altitude sickness. My God. And, it, and that's just something that you don't know whether you're going to get or not. It's... it's a roll of the dice that's kind of Russian roulette yeah. you know you, you don't know you could be the fittest person in the world yeah. and you can just be struck it's like lightning and uh, the other thing is you can have had a brilliant experience at altitude before return and suddenly the, the second time it, it deeply affected so n- not a huge amount is known about altitude sickness and why it affects different people in, in different ways and Victoria you know, she took the really brave decision to, to abandon her attempt, which mm. I think was far braver than me carrying on, to be quite honest. You know, the, 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 the strength of character to do that was mm. huge because mm. 
often when you're in the midst of suffering from altitude sickness, you don't realise quite how dangerous your situation is. And she didn't. And, and we had to try and explain to her the, the very real dangers of, of uh, what she was experiencing. Which are what? The, the, you can, death. Dizziness. Is it well, de- listen, the, the, the risks are death within minutes. Uh, so what happens? What, what with, happens, yeah. Well, you get, so it's called acute mountain sickness. So there's various levels of mountain sickness. Now, many people who will go up to altitude, if you climb Kilimanjaro, people get the headaches and the nausea. You might get bleeding gums, a bleeding nose, bleeding eyes even. But oh th- that, that's kind of accepted. That A lot of people will just put up with the headaches and the nausea and the lack of appetite. But... As soon as you start getting uh, acute mountain sickness, which is cerebral um, and pulmonary edema, um, HAPE or HACE as it's known, those can be instant death. So your body's producing more liquid and the, the liquid goes into the brain and pushes against the brain or it goes into the lungs and you can actually drown. Now, for those listening, I'm not a doctor. That's my basic description of, mm. of what it is. But um, you, you, you have the, the, the only treatment is to get off the mountain as quickly as possible. So as soon as you descend, you, you're, um, you, you're going to, um, your symptoms will improve. Mm. And that's what happened with Victoria. Yeah. But that's what's hard. So you then go down a thousand meters yeah. and then you feel great. Yeah. But the reality is that uh, you're, still, uh, you're still suffering. Just yeah. wait for Felicia to get the door. No, I think it's... And, um, I, oh yeah, no, I'm good for time still, actually. That's good, yeah. And... As you say, as an accomplished sportswoman who is competitive to the core, that must have been bloody hard for her to accept. You know that actually that was the uh, that was the answer for her, obviously. Um, so yeah, hats off to her for that. Um, in terms of um, writing it all down, how useful was that? Like coming back and reflecting on it, because you obviously don't do that every time you take on one of these challenges no the book the book I, I i thought long and hard i mean i i thought long and hard about writing the book um as you mentioned it's my 10th book and i love writing but i've realized you, you have to have the right topic and theme and i've written mm. books about big adventures before and you know they do, the, the book market is a busy one right now and i i looked at how many books i've got most of them have been written about everest and there's hundreds there's probably thousands of books you know because everyone has a great tale and most of those books are are kind of the the tragedies you know that most of them are the disaster books on Everest I probably won't be reading those before uh, I let Owen go no probably not um and mine obviously had mixed you know I I had mixed experiences there with Victoria um not making it to the top but but I got there and I, I wasn't sure what would make mine any different but I had such a Standing on top of Everest was such a profound, such a profound life-changing moment. I didn't think it was possible after all the things I've already done in life. Mm. I didn't think it was possible to do it again after already being a father, after having lived on islands for a year and rowing across the Atlantic. I thought it would be impossible to have something that genuinely changed me deeply, profoundly, and it did. And I decided that I wanted to write a book which is not just about the physicality of the climb, but about a life lesson that you take from it and and so the book up my life's journey to the top of Everest it's it's a life lesson it's and and listen I'm not a I'm not a philosopher and I'm not a teacher but I think there are lessons I've learned over the years through the people I've met and through the experiences that I've had that I'd like to think have been um, put on the page here and I like to think that this book will leave you feeling elated and happy and positive and upbeat and I kind of I think there's so much negativity in the world right now you need to look at social media it's it's there's so much 
bubbling anger, and I don't know why that's there. Mm-hmm. I hope it's just a I hope it's just a blip, and that, that we'll come through it, and and we'll have a a more positive uh, outlook in in a couple of years. But it feels like we're in a we're, it feels like we're under a collective rain cloud right now. Mm-hmm. You can hear the rain <laughs> falling. <laughs> Um, but it feels like we're under that. And so the book I'd like, I, I want people to read this book and not, not be inspired to necessarily go and climb Everest. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because uh, it's quite hard and it's quite dangerous. But I do want them to climb their own Everest. Mm. And everyone has a challenge, whatever that is, whether it's a physical challenge, whether it's changing job, partner, whatever it is, house, mm. taking a financial risk. Um, I, think, I think we need to embrace that a little bit mm. more. Mm. Yeah, because my best mate and I always have this thing about going out of our comfort zone, even if it's something very small, like cooking something you haven't tried before or wearing something you wouldn't normally wear. And it's so true that if you do do it, you grow in confidence the next day and it doesn't seem like it was even the smallest challenge, and by the looking way, back on it. That's exactly how I define adventure. People are like, yeah. well, what is adventure? Well, okay, for me, adventure is climbing an 8,000-meter peak because yeah. of this curry um, analogy I gave yeah. you. I need a spicier, I, I need a spicier yeah. um, dish in front of me. But um, uh, adventure is just doing something out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. So if you go on an adventure holiday, it doesn't have to be living in hammocks and, and camping on the side of a mountain. Mm-hmm. It's merely doing something that isn't quite in your normal comfort zone. And I genuinely think going to a different restaurant, we're all creatures of habit, aren't we? We all like to do that. We we like the consistency. It's why I like being back at home because it's the one time when I can actually get into a routine of dropping the kids off, going for a run or going to the gym and then um, uh, going and having the sandwich in the same place. I, I can go through that routine um, but I think it's really important to shake that up mm. and, and actually often taking yourself out of that comfort zone, you appreciate what you have absolutely. and you start to you know really value the smaller things in yeah, life absolutely now you say you're not a philosopher or a teacher but I would say you probably are both um you are a great communicator and something that I've really noticed is the way that you and Marina communicate with each other mm. you were incredibly brave I felt and open when you when you lost your your son mm-hmm. uh, Willem 2014 mm-hmm. was it um was this ability to continually talk and talk and talk it through what what's ultimately saved you and 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 helped you through what is a horrific process yeah i think i mean it comes back to that storytelling mm. i think my approach to life has always been to be very honest i've mm. i've i've always worn my heart absolutely on my sleeve there's no you you get what you see and i've always done that through work mm. and i think when you have an awful experience like we had and um, Willem was stillborn at eight months and all those dreams and hopes disappeared and it, and it's a different stillbirth I think I as a man in particular I didn't know what stillbirth was but what's the difference between miscarriage what's what, and how can you be sad if you've lost something you never had it, all of these things um, were, were deeply confusing at the time and and what marina and i did was talk and not just to each other we sought help we spoke to therapists we spoke to other people and actually both marina and i have have done a huge amount with child bereavement uk with tommies and and marina in particular really kind of seized this as an opportunity to share it with other people mm-hmm. and then and marina also suffered miscarriages over the years and and I think we both felt it was very important to be honest with people because the number of people we who heard that it had happened to us that would say it happened to, to, to them as well was astonishing. And we live in a society, I think, where we like to 
set dress everything. It's mm. the, the Instagram analogy. Everything has to look perfect. It's the, the this, this idea that everyone else's life is more perfect than, than yours. Well, it's not true, is it? We're mm. all, we're humans. Everyone has the same vulnerabilities. Mm. And, and losing Willem affected Marina and I deeply and in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we both kind of grieved in different ways. But the one, the, the mutual thing that, that we did have was to talk about it and to be very honest about it. And I, without doubt, it helped us hugely um, to, to come to terms with that. And we know other people that didn't. We know other people that kind of took perhaps that English stiff upper lipped mentality. No, I don't go and speak to, you know, and I'll admit going to the, the, the first time Marina suggested going and speaking to a, a specialist, to a therapist, I, I kind of thought, but that's, that's for, that's, that's for, for weaker people mm-hmm. than me. And, and now if you start looking at the whole mental health um, issue as a whole, especially with young men, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, much more acutely aware of that. Victoria Pendleton, when we got back from Everest, spoke very openly about her depression. I definitely had a bit of a dark cloud after Everest. I think it was more induced by the lack of uh, oxygen. But I definitely kind of had this this lingering dark cloud. And it, I, I think it would be unfair on those who suffer real depression to describe it as mm-hmm. depression. But I definitely, mm-hmm. I, I had no, I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to go and and see people. I lost my appetite. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go out. Um, you know what that's really interesting because you say you didn't want to label it depression Michael Carrick said mm, exactly this to me mm, on his podcast he said you know I didn't want to do a disservice to those who mm, had real depression but you know you can't define that if you couldn't get out of bed in the morning mm, that is a type mm, of depression and you're not belittling anyone else's struggle mm, by saying that if anything you're empowering them mm, because you're saying it's okay because look at big strong me even I mm, have those dark days well I think it's, it's, it's human nature mm. it's we will have you know I wrote it in the, the letter to the children you will have good days and bad mm. days and and I think it's human nature is about trying to see through that darkness and for some people it's such a deep fog it's really really hard and having spent time now with people who are deep in that mist um it 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 it, it's so overwhelming um it it can be difficult as an outsider to see how you can you can help them but i'm much more acutely aware now about um the the power of the mind and it's an obvious one isn't it when someone's got a broken arm you can say poor you um but when when the the illness or the injury is is invisible Mm -hmm. or invisible to those outside it's a harder one and I'm really glad that people are talking about it mm. all a lot more and, and it, it kind of comes back to my philosophy on life anyway that, that you need to, to talk about things after we lost Willem I, my symptom bizarrely was, was anxiety like hyper anxiety I was worried about everything and, and mm. I, I remember going to an awards dinner I went on my own I'd been to hundreds over the years on my own I'm very happy to do that it's not something the marina particularly enjoys doing and, and, and I went along and I found myself hiding in the loo, and uh, and I, I literally left after about ten minutes. I couldn't, I couldn't, and and I think analysing it and speaking to a therapist, it was because I'd lost control of the situation. And for me, as a father, I felt I'd lost, I'd let Willem and Marina down with, with what had happened, and it was me trying to regain control and being in a social gathering with so many people. I couldn't control it I couldn't mm. control who was going to come up to me were they going to say sorry were they going to say how's your how's your third child mm. I, I I it was this fear of the unknown and and that manifested itself in this this anxiety I had like panic attacks mm. um and uh 
And I think if that can happen to me, and I am a pretty, I have a strong constitution, I have a strong uh, mentality, um, it, 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 it's just a reminder that um, we, all humans, whoever you are, we all have, I can't even use it, I don't want to use the word vulnerabilities, but I think that's what it is. I think well, it's, we, we, we all, we, we, we are all human. I mean, because for those who don't know, you, you lost Willem, which is... Horrific tragedy. Mm. Can't bear thinking about it. But you nearly lost Marina mm. as well. What actually happened to her? Well, I mean, I was on the other side of the world, so I was in Canada, mm. um, and Marina was in Austria. And I got a call early in the morning. Luckily, I was with my father out in Canada, and I had my phone turned off. And and uh, Marina's family got through to him. And I was on a plane two hours later. But as I got onto that plane, I was warned that Marina might not make it. Oh so, flying across the Atlantic not knowing whether I was going to be become a, a widower oh um, was was a, a pretty hideous experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone. But uh, she, she had a, a, a placental abruption. The, the placenta pulled away. She, they, they couldn't stem the bleeding. So for me, actually, when I landed in the UK, and I still had to then get on to, to Austria, I had to get another flight. But when I landed in the UK, I found out that they'd stemmed the flow. I knew Marina w- was going to be so She was in ICU for a long time, but I knew she would be okay. For me, the loss of Willem was objective. It, it, that, was, that, that was like something separate that I had to push to the side. My focus was on Marina and the children, Ludo and Iona, and making sure they were, they were fine. So I think my grieving as such came a little bit later mm. um, perhaps because of my focus at the time which was all about mm. Marina Ludo and Iona. It's interesting because when I had Wilf um, it was a, a bit of a scary birth. How are you yeah. doing for time? Good, I, I, like five minutes. Is that, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, when I had Wilf it was a, it was a scary time and um, afterwards I couldn't stop crying. I mean mm-hmm. I know my hormones were all over mm. the shop as well and first of all they said to me, just keep talking. Mm. Just keep telling the story of his birth mm-hmm. until it doesn't become, you know, fraught with anxiety and, and stress for you. And then the other thing that my best mate said to me was, I guess I kept saying, but he could have died, he could have died, he should, but he didn't. Mm, he yeah. didn't. And you've now got to put, you know, yeah. a marker in the sand and move forward from that, which is obviously what you were able to do with Marina, which is why it's interesting mm. that then grieving poor little Willem came mm. later because mm. you were, had to compartmentalise that at the mm-hmm. time to focus on her mm-hmm. but there's, there's an awful lot to go through just for you but also as a family yeah and I think and there was and Everest actually Willem loomed quite large there I kind of I felt uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not a particularly spiritual or religious person but I actually I kind of felt I mean part of the inspiration for Everest was to live life for the two of us now because it's a little life he he never got to live here so I kind of want to I want to live mine even more brightly for him as well and actually he loomed quite large and and I never felt alone there despite a lot of solitude I I always felt there was a little presence um and uh, and certainly on the summit I kind of I I, there there was an added sense of satisfaction that I'd done it not just for me and the family the immediate family but but for for little Willem as well and and you know, I think it's my attitude to life, you know, the, the title of the book up. It's mm. how do you go from this? How do you move onwards and upwards? And I think so many people have struggled so many, so many people in, in Great Britain and all around the world struggle with so many things. They mm. struggle with finances. They struggle with illness. They struggle with disability. They struggle with 
political um, issues. There's so many things. We, 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 there will be an ever-constant battle or struggle. And it's how do we take that baseline and move on and up rather than dwelling, rather than, rather than getting angry, rather than preaching, rather than sitting and wallowing in, in this. How do we try and find the light in the darkness mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that the whole world is darkness it's not but there are a lot of dark clouds around and it's about dodging those dark clouds mm-hmm. and there's many different ways of dodging the clouds you can put up an umbrella mm-hmm. you could just stay inside or you can get an amazing jacket or you can go out naked and it doesn't matter because <laughs> uh, your skin's waterproof anyway yeah. so there's so many different ways of approaching that and mine and I think Everest really um, was a reminder of that it, it's just it's about not feeling sorry for yourself and it's about trying to look at the positives mm. and it's about moving onwards and upwards. Although, I mean, the story for yourself is an interesting one because I also believe there is such a thing as righteous anger. Because mm-hmm. what I tend to do a lot is bury things and go, look how lucky I am. I, I shouldn't dwell on anything that's vaguely negative. Mm. But if someone does wrong you or something awful does happen mm-hmm. to you, there is part of you that does need to process that, isn't there? Because otherwise, it, it, that can border on the stiff upper lip thing of saying, don't feel sorry for yourself. Just push that to one side. But it depends what you're right. But it kind of depends what what, what has instigated that. Now, mm. I, I I can I think both Marina and I felt with Willem that it was no one's fault. Yeah. It, it was a it was a freak accident that yeah. does happen. But no warning, uh, nothing. No no, no yeah. warning. We we can't blame anyone. Yeah. I don't I don't really like the blame culture thing no. anyway. And and you know medics are, are just doing their job. So mm. and certainly in our case, it, it really was no one's fault. Mm. And as much as you want to blame, and and I think human nature sometimes we need to try and blame someone if you stub your toe you you want to blame someone but ultimately it's just the step that you stubbed your toe on and you can't do anything about that so just get on with it but i but i do think people need to understand why something happens to prevent it happening again no you're right Uh, does it it stop you wanting to have another baby are you able to have another baby the the dangers were too too great for us um the chances of it happening again were 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 too great and so we we looked at all the alternatives we looked at adoption we looked at surrogacy um uh, we, we we looked at all of them and we decided eventually after going quite far through this whole process we decided that we have two beautiful children why would we why would we put our life on hold because it's a tremendous process adoption surrogacy and any of those a tremendous process that's all consuming uh you, you often you can it can take years for this to happen of, of focused um, work. And we decided why, why would we take our, our focus off the two children we already have mm-hmm. just to pursue this dream of three? Both Marina and I are one of three. That's what we grew up in. I think you often want to replicate what mm-hmm. you had. And, uh, and we, we decided we both, and, and neither of us regret it anymore, we, we decided that actually we would stick with what we have two beautiful children you've got to appreciate what we have and and if anything it kind of made us a stronger family mm. it, it means you know we we travel frequently we're a really tight team mm. and uh and and i think we 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 just learned a, a very good lesson from that and yes of course occasionally when i see people that have three children i do I, i'd be lying if i didn't kind of say i kind of it, it cross and i know marina is the same we'll, we'll kind of think that could have been us that should have been us mm. But it isn't. And let's not let's not feel sorry for ourselves. Mm. Let's appreciate what we have, not what we haven't got. Mm. Absolutely. And actually, we're in a very similar position. We 
came to that conclusion as well. And I love this little tight-knit squad, one-on-one, man-on-man marking mm-hmm. as opposed to zonal. Mm-hmm. It goes out of control mm-hmm. if you've got three. That's, that's it. It's, it's, I, I love, you know what? It just works really well because we, we have, we have yeah. crossovers. So sometimes it's me and Iona, our daughter. Other times it's me and Ludo. Yeah. And we're just a tight little team. Yeah, and and, it, and it, it, just, it works beautifully well. And I love my children more than life itself. And, uh, and, and I think both Marina and I appreciate that we are the luckiest people in the world. We, we're ever, d- despite what's happened to us, um, I still feel incredibly lucky. Um, and um, I, I couldn't really ask for any more. I mean, you really are a glass half full kind of character, massive optimist which I love um, is there anything though that keeps you awake at night is there anything that troubles you or worries you um, I think um, not really do you know what no, no. I'm kind of I, there are lots of things I could I, listen I, I should probably say to you yeah I'm worried about what we're doing to the planet and I probably should say to you yeah I'm worried about um, the decimation of populations of animals in Africa and that keeps me awake and it, it certainly worries me and I spend a huge amount of time focusing on those issues I'm working with the United Nations now as their patron of the wilderness I'm doing a lot of conservation work but it doesn't keep me awake at night because I, I think my immediate focus is on my family and um, and I'm very content that I'm that I'm working hard to try and make the world a better place but fortunately, it's not, or unfortunately, I don't know, it depends on what, how you interpret it, but that it, it doesn't necessarily keep me awake at night. Because if, if we really wrote onto a piece of paper now all the things in the world that are happening that aren't, aren't good, it's a very long list. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that would be enough to keep me awake for years and years. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, I, uh, I keep myself so busy and active, I, I do sleep pretty well. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Have a great time in Sri Lanka. Why are you going to Sri Lanka again? I'm going to Sri Lanka to start a new series actually called Wild Lives. I've been making oh, yeah. a series well, I've been making a series called New Lives in the Wild for yeah. many years and we're actually making a, a slightly different version which is about people who have embraced um, an alternative life, not necessarily in the wilderness, but in a wild part of the world. So uh, I'm off to do the very first one in Sri Lanka with a family who have set up a, a dog rescue uh, centre out there, which I'm, oh. I'm really excited about doing. I'm probably going to come back with a couple of dogs in a bag, oh, which no. I think Marina Marina's a bit nervous about. Usually I come back and I say, great, we're moving to the Falkland Islands, and she rolls her eyes. Uh, uh, but if I come back with a dog under my arm, there's nothing she can do about that, because uh, it, it will be here to stay. Have an amazing time. Thank you for your time. It's fantastic. <laughs> The smile and energy and positivity that Ben brings to everything is genuine. I mean, it's not faked. This guy is for real a very shiny, happy human being who is constantly counting his blessings and sucking the marrow out of life. So, yeah, I'm sure we can all learn a lot from him. He's fantastic. Um, So thank you, Ben, for your time. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, Please give me some feedback. Tweet me at Natalie Pinkham. Rate, review, subscribe, do all those things. Um, Let me know who else you'd like me to get on this podcast. I'm really open to suggestions. Um, There's plenty more on the way, including Tamara Eccleston, who reveals to me what it was like growing up as Bernie's daughter. And she's got some, as you would imagine, brilliant insight. 
Until then, lots of love. I'll speak to you soon. Bye for now.